various things that distract us, that press in on our hearts, that stand ready to keep us from hearing the things that you want us to hear. So help us, uh, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, to be ready to hear your word as it falls on our ears, that it would move to our hearts and change us, encourage us, shape us, convict us where we need it, and give us life. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive. You're still alive today, just like you were last weekend. We celebrated in a particular way the resurrection. Thank you that you always live to pray for us. And even though we may fail, you'll never fail to be alive. And we love you. We thank you for these things, Jesus, and we pray them in your name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. That was a pretty weak good morning. Good morning. All right, that's a little better. A couple of family things before we, uh, before we jump into, uh, you can grab your Bibles and you can open to James chapter 2. We're going to jump back into James this morning. A couple of family items. Uh, firstly, just wanted to let you know that our newest member was born on Friday. So Grady Childs, so born to Lauren and Jared Childs. Um, he was born at a dainty 8 pounds, 14 ounces. It's a tiny little chap. <laughs> So, but he, they're doing well. Um, we're hoping to be able to see them maybe this afternoon in the hospital, but please be praying for them, praying for Lauren and, and for Grady as well as they make the transition back home and for Jared uh, as well, but particularly for Lauren and for baby Grady. Uh, and then also, um, many of you know that our brother Michael Dyson, who hasn't been with us for a number of months because he has been battling uh, lymphoma, uh, form of cancer, and by God's grace is in remission. Uh, he has his final chemo treatment tomorrow. And the last round um, really hit him pretty hard physically. And so he texted me yesterday uh, asking if we could pray for him this morning, just that God would strengthen him. And because we're a family and we're here, we're connected to one another, I want you to know that. So you can be praying for him, uh, particularly tomorrow as he goes in for that last treatment. But I want to just pray now for him, just that God would strengthen him and continue to remove the cancer from his body and keep it that way. Amen. All right, let's, let's pray together for Michael. Uh, God, thank you that you hear our prayers. So your word says that you are a God who hears prayer. And so we come to you because we have nowhere else to go. And we come to you because you promise that our prayers are effective as we continue to knock and continue to ask that you are faithful to give, you're faithful to answer. So would you be with our brother Michael? Would you strengthen him? Help him not be anxious about tomorrow. And we do pray that all of the good that could come from the treatment tomorrow would be what happens, and that, that none of the effects, maybe that he's felt the last round or in general, uh, would hinder him physically, um, that you'd strengthen him for what's ahead, and we do pray um, that you would, in removing the cancer, that it would never return. That's our heart, our desire. We pray specifically for that because we want to be those who ask and not those who don't have because we don't ask. So be with our brother, strengthen Pam as well as she comes alongside her husband, and <clears throat> thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump back into the book of James. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, as a church, we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we're in the book of James right now. And so because we, we've taken a couple weeks off um, through the kind of Easter week and Holy Week, I do want to kind of reorient us to where we are. So we're in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 14 through 26 this morning, and arguably a section that's among the most controversial in the whole New Testament. Um, because what we're going to see this morning is James makes the statement that faith apart from works is dead. It's useless. 
It's meaningless. And so this whole book, in some ways, hinges on this section. You could argue that earlier, um, the section that Pastor Mike dealt with, being doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, likewise, is kind of the, the centerpiece of this whole letter. And essentially, what Pastor Bill shared several weeks ago is that there's a, there's a temptation for us in our personal faith with Christ as Christians to want to have, as Bill put it, Jesus on the cover, but not in the pages of our story. And so James is, ad- is addressing the, the notion that you can't have a profession of faith and it not work outwardly in a myriad of different ways. That if you know Jesus, it impacts everything about you. It impacts who you are. It impacts what you say and your posture toward other people. He says, be doers of the word. Don't treat people with favoritism. Don't think it's your, you're, you're okay compromising in one area just because you're growing in another area. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus himself, when he gets a hold of a human heart, he radically changes everything about us. And so we're told today that faith without works, in fact, is dead. So because your faith in Jesus should color every page of your life, the work God has done in your heart should be expressed outward, worked out by your hands and your feet. And so what I want to do is I want to give us a little bit of bearing. And I'm going to refer, if you want to go all the way back in the first book of your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, and you'll see why in just a little bit. Genesis chapter 15, if you don't have a Bible and you can't get there, that's okay. You can grab a Bible in the chair in front of you or it'll be up here as well. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, we, we have an Old Testament character, Abram. So he's going to be renamed Abraham later in the book. And Abraham is a remarkable historical figure because he really is the centerpiece, in many ways, the origins of three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and then through his son Ishmael, the, uh, the, the faith of the Muslim faith and Islam. And so in this moment, in Genesis 15, we see a remarkable statement made about Abraham that is arguably one of the most important in all of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says this. It says, And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to Abram as righteousness. So this is the very first time the word belief and righteousness are mentioned in the Bible. So in this moment, you see Abram basically is called out uniquely as an individual and is going to become a particular family, namely the Israelites. And God calls them kind of out of the world to represent him to the world. And it's through his family that all of his promises are going to to come through them to the world. The, The whole world will be blessed through Abraham, which ultimately is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's clearly spelled out for us that belief or faith is what provides righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to Abram as righteousness. And this is essentially what you could say is the gospel, the good news in the Old Testament. If you're with us last week, we looked at how when Jesus rose from the grave and he walked, particularly with a couple guys on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He took time through the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms to share with them how the whole Bible points to him. And so in Genesis 15, this is one of the many examples of that, how we have a forward-looking faith and a descendant of Abraham who ultimately would provide salvation and be a source of blessing for all nations. So the Bible uses a lot of accounting terms. For those of you accounting 
wizards, you'll like this. Words like debt or count, redeem, payment, save, credit, they're all pretty significant words in the Bible. Let me just kind of depict what I mean. Because what we have present in the scriptures, and if, if you're not a Christian in this room, I'm so grateful that you're here. And if you are, pray this is just strengthen your faith in Jesus. But let me kind of use these terms to quickly help us understand what we're talking about. We're talking about faith, faith in God, faith in Christ. The picture is this, that we have a weight of debt we cannot pay. It's called sin. And as a result, we are counted guilty before God. So Jesus perfectly obeys the law when he's born and when he lives. He loves God perfectly, loves others perfectly. He perfectly obeys the law and as a result is able to buy us back or redeem us from our sentence of death. He does so through the payment of his own blood, his own life. He becomes our debt. And as we look to him in faith, we are saved. We are credited with his righteousness. So all those terms add up to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That as Brad mentioned, even talking about giving, is that Jesus became what we are, namely unrighteous. He became our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that through faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the good news of the Christian message, is that by no work of our own, we get to be accepted in God's sight. We're going to hear the word justified several times in this section and what that means. And just don't forget this, one of the most important words in the Bible. There's a way in which you can be considered righteous in the sight of God. And I've said this before, and I want to say it clearly again. When you stand before God someday, and you will, just like I will, the thing that you will need the most is to be considered righteous. The thing that you will desperately long for is to be considered righteous. And the only way that that can happen is through faith in Jesus alone. Alone. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're considered innocent in God's sight by faith. Romans 3, 22 through 24 says it this way. It says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction... For all, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's a lot in a little bit. But what I hope that would do is just set our foundation a little bit as we walk into this text because there's a whole lot here and I hope this will give us some bearing. So let's, with that, let's read in the book of James, chapter 2, verses <clears throat> 14 through 16. We'll get into our text. We're going to read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll kind of march back up and journey through a couple of different chunks. So chapter 2, verse 14. This is God's word for us from the book of James. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's that verse we read in Genesis 15. Notably, when he went to sacrifice his son is several chapters later in chapter 22. The moment where it's credited to him as righteousness in his faith comes before he offers up his son Isaac. We'll get there in just a little bit. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger's and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right. There's a whole lot here. But here's the main argument that I would submit that, that James is making that I'm going to make to you. And it's very simple, but yet very challenging. Is that faith without works is dead. A workless Faith is a flatlined faith, is essentially what James is saying. And you, you can't really, really, you could try to dance around it and make it say something that it doesn't, but the reality is, is that if you say you have faith and it doesn't work outwardly, then there's, there's no faith at all. So all these kind of gospel-shaped nudges and jabs that we've gotten so far, be doers of the word, hey, watch the way that you speak, don't give in to partiality, treat everybody equally. All these nudges and jabs that are gospel-shaped from James, like they turn into like a straight uppercut in this section. He's like, hey, if your faith isn't working outwardly, you need to beware that your faith is real at all. And that's tough to hear. It's in significant measures tough to preach. James doesn't believe that merely being a hearer of the word leads to less effectiveness he isn't making the case that it's just a bad idea to show favoritism or partiality to certain people. He says without apology, if your faith isn't working outwardly, it doesn't exist inwardly. That's pretty straight language, about as straight as I can imagine someone preaching or saying in a letter. So verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. So his primary question is, is faith without works an actual saving faith? Is it enough to save someone if they say that they have faith and there's no change, there's no work that comes from that profession? The answer is clear. Faith without works is dead. Real saving faith, the whole book is this reality that real saving faith is faith in action. It's alive. It works. It acts out word, what's real inwardly. Real saving faith is faith in action. doesn't merely speak, it works. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So a faith that merely in words says, hey, bless you, keep you, be warmed, be filled, like be, be hungry no more. He's like, what good is that? Like it's, it's no good at all. Like it's useless. It doesn't benefit the person you say those very words. It's a no good faith. 
And so if my kids, as a, as a parent, one of the things you recognize is like so much of your life is dedicated to answering the question of what are we having to eat for the next meal? It's like 20% of my life and Haley's life is like, what are we having for breakfast? I don't know. We just woke up. How about lunch? How about dinner? And so you, so if our kids came to us like, hey, what are we having for dinner? And I'm just like, hey, go, go be filled. Just be filled. Like just don't be hungry anymore. That's not going to work. It doesn't work, right? If, if one of our daughters comes to us like, hey, I'm cold. I'm really, I really could use some, a blanket. I'm like, hey, just be warm. Just be warm. Be warm. It's okay. Just think warm thoughts, right? Like we don't do that. We see the silliness in that. But here's the interesting part about this is that James isn't trying to commend to us like a ministry of generosity. That's not his main point. He's not firstly saying, hey, when someone's hungry, you should give them food, which we should do. And he's not primarily saying if someone doesn't have clothes, you should give them clothes. We should do that. His main point is that's all an illustration for his main argument that faith without works is dead. In verse 17, look there with me. He says, so also, comparing it to this metaphor of the hungry, the warm, the or the cold, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just as words do not put clothes on someone's back, just as a verbal offer of warmth does not benefit someone who needs a blanket, just as a declaration of be filled doesn't benefit someone who is hungry, faith without works does not benefit you. It does not and will not save you. That's his argument. It's not commending to us ministries of mercy. You can find that in all sorts of other places in the Bible. That's not his argument. This is a metaphor for if you just in words say one thing and it doesn't work out, that's useless. It won't save you in the end. It'll prove that basically your profession is meaningless because it hasn't demonstrated itself through a life ultimately submitted to God and living out imperfectly, the works of righteousness within you. A workless faith is no good. These are all words. It's no good. It's dead. It's useless. It's a flatlined faith. So verse 18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. It seems like James is kind of bringing up this imaginary argument, maybe even a person that he's thinking as he writes this letter. It's like there's some who are going to say, like, Hey, you have like the gift of works, I have the gift of faith, right? We just, we all do our own thing. So he's kind of propping up this, this argument against what he's proposing, that faith without works. He's like, hey, some people have faith, some people have, have works. He's like, let me just be clear about this. Let me show you my faith by my works. Because works is ultimately connected to saving faith. And James uses the same word for works in a couple other places in his letter, and it's kind of helpful to help us understand what it is he's getting at. Look at James 1, 4. It says, and let steadfastness, talking about the effect, you know, the maturing effect of trials. We talked a lot about that in the first chapter. It says, let steadfastness have its full effect. And that word effect is the same word for works in chapter 2 in the section that we're reading right now. So you can could, you could think of it this way. There's a cause and effect relationship between faith and works. 
genuine saving faith brought about by the Spirit of God will lead to works of righteousness through that same power that saves someone. There's a direct cause and effect in the saving faith as a Christian. Christians are to be ones who do what God says. Why? Because hearers forget, but doers act. So that same word for works is used in James 1.25, and it's translated acts. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The faith that saves a person has an effect on every part of that person. Having done a work in us, God accomplishes a work through us. Saving faith is faith in action. So legitimacy of our faith is not found merely in what we what we say, it's found and demonstrated in what is seen in our lives. It works outwardly. So in verse 19, you believe that God is one. And so here's, it's kind of drawn attention in a really significant kind of deep way, kind of a rattling way that, hey, you say that you believe in God. There's the verbal profession. You say that you believe that God is one, kind of hearkening back to Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God, he is one. There's one true God, and you say that you believe that, the, that God is one. Well, you do well to do that. That's a good idea to acknowledge that. But even the demons believe, and they shudder in fear. And so it's like the, the first half of that sentence is kind of juxtaposed. It's like, hey, it's a good idea to believe that God is one, but just remember that even the demons believed in Jesus. And if your faith doesn't, result in works, then it's actually, it's, it's useless. It's no faith at all. It's not saving faith. Saving faith is not merely belief in certain information. Like saving faith leads to transformation. I think we know that. Like, we pause long enough. Even though this, these words are kind of offensive to us, and we'll get to how they just, they match up with the grace of God and saving us by faith but we've seen, we saw it in 1 Peter as well, like being a holy people. If God saves you, he doesn't leave you the same. How could it be? Like, how could it be that any of us would encounter the God of the universe and he would leave us the same? He radically transforms us. There's a, so much so that there's an old person, there's an old creature that has gone. Old things have passed away. New things have come. We had an old uniform in the former life, and we put on the new man that's being conformed in the image of Jesus and righteousness and truth, right? <clears throat> you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This word shudder is interesting. It's only found one other place, and it's actually in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint in Job 4.15, but it's kind of a helpful picture. The same word for shudder in our text this morning is translated hairs stood on end. If you can think of like uh, goosebumps where your hairs stand up on your skin, it's used in Job 4.15 in that way. Here's why I think it's helpful. It's because you can, I can, we can, individuals can have like a, a visceral, like emotional reaction to truths that we see in the Bible. Songs even can create a certain reaction to truth. And quite literally, your hairs could stand up on your skin. But it's interesting to note that what James is saying is like, hey, it's not enough just to have some sort of reaction or goosebumps about the truth. 
And you may very well be, be confronted by the reality of who God is, God is, and you shudder. Like deep inside you, you shudder, and you get goosebumps. But he's basically saying that's not sufficient to save a person. That's not sufficient to demonstrate that your profession is real just because you had a feeling or reaction to the truth. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It's useless if the only thing that happens is a momentary sense of sobriety or even fear. Our shudder has to lead ultimately to submission. And if you, if you go down in the text we're in, chapter 2, two of the examples, the people object lessons as it were. The second one is Rahab, an interesting character in Joshua chapter 2. So when the people of God, the Israelites, were coming into the promised land, they sent some spies beforehand to, to check out the land to see what it was like. And there's a story in Jericho where Rahab, a prostitute, comes into contact with these spies who come in to look at the land. And the short form of this story is she saves their life from the king of Jericho, trying to chase them down to kill them. And there's this momentary interaction where she says a lot that connects us to this example in James chapter 2. And I want to read a couple verses from Joshua chapter 2 to illustrate the same thing that I believe James is talking about with this whole the demons shudder. Like they know enough about God where they stand in fear, but yet they don't submit to him. And so with that lens, let's look at Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. And we'll have it up here. You don't have to chase it down. So this is Rahab to these spies, the Israelites. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, the promised land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. This is in the Exodus when they came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, who, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Connect that to shuddered. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What seems to be taking shape here is that Rahab and all the inhabitants of Jericho, they had heard about God. They had heard of the mighty works of God, so much so that their hearts melted within them. They were fearful. They shuddered at the notion of the presence of God and his people coming to their doorstep. But Rahab is committed not because merely she heard and she feared but because she acted upon that fear by protecting the spies. So she's commended as a, a person whose faith and belief in God, the one true God, is connected to her outward working of protecting the spies. That's why the example is there. She didn't just merely shudder like the rest of the city, but in engaging with these spies, her faith, her fear led her to act in faith. It didn't merely collide with her head, but it changed her heart and her hands and her whole life, just like it should with us. And we'll close looking at Abraham. So like Rahab and Abraham, our faith must be active along with our works, completed by our works. Look at verse 20. So James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do I need to prove to you how faith is dead apart from works? He goes on, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So what I want to do, it's important for us to do, there's a, this is where the primary tension has come in historically. Because of very clear language that James says, it seems to stand in direct opposition to Paul's language, particularly in Romans chapter 3. Let me just kind of zoom in on that. I don't have enough time to unpack this entirely, but I want to give enough to where if that tension looms for you, there's enough clarity as to understand how we can marry in God's word these two without there being contradiction. So in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 and 28, Paul says it this way. Just take note of the language. We just heard that someone is justified by works, Abraham namely, But in Romans chapter 3, verses 20 and 28, this is what Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified or or considered righteous by faith apart from works of the law. So you take these two statements, the, the sentences present in Romans and James, and they look like they're in direct contradiction of one another. So James says, Abraham was justified by works. Paul tells us that people are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Here's a couple comments to help us interpret the difference between these two. And it's really found in audience and argument. So Paul, in Romans chapter 3, here's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 3. He's speaking to the the Jew who takes their confidence in the relationship with God based on law-keeping. It's like you who say that you're right with God because of keeping the law You need to understand that righteousness never came through works of the law. It came on the basis of faith, and he hearkens back to Abraham as well. But he's dealing with a different audience and a different argument. He's dealing primarily with the Jew that puts their trust in their law-keeping to make them right with God. That's Romans chapter 3. In James, his argument and his audience are different because he seems to be addressing those who still Jews Believe that there's some type of profession of faith that you can have that is just covered so much by grace that it doesn't matter how you act. Those are two very different arguments and very different audiences. And so James addresses this one saying that, hey, just in case you think that there's some version of faith that doesn't work its way outwardly, you need to understand that Abraham's faith was always connected to his work acted out the faith that he said indeed it was acted out in, or in word, it was acted out indeed as he went particularly to sacrifice his son Isaac. So really the distinction and understanding comes from knowing that they're addressing two different arguments and two different audience, although by the same heritage, two different postures of people. James's primary argument isn't that we're saved by something more than faith alone, but rather true saving faith isn't alone. That's the way Martin Luther put it. We're saved by faith in Christ alone, but the faith that we have is not alone. You see the difference between those two statements? Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, your faith is not alone. That's James's argument. If you say that you have grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, but your life is no different, that faith is useless. That's his argument. Because even the first one who's credited as righteous before God, his faith was married with his works. His faith was demonstrated by his works. That's James's argument. That's our argument today. That's the thing that we have to sit underneath. 
And doubtless, there's some of us in this room that are confronted by that. And we live in a church culture in the South. And we come into contact with people all the time. I have working with State Farm initially when we were here. Some of my coworkers were born in the South, and we start to get into spiritual conversation. They'd put up this wall of Christian terminology. Like, hey, I'm saved, I was baptized, but yet they're, they're never part of the church. There's no seeming fruit outwardly that they, they love Jesus and want to live for him. But yet there's this veneer of Christianity that I would submit is what James is talking about. There's an, a verbal profession with no practice that aligns with that profession. I think we all have to address that danger in our own hearts, right? But particularly in a church context where the terminology is familiar, maybe you've grown up in church your whole life, and somehow you've, your security is drawn from your consistency on Sunday morning. You're not saved by coming to church. It's important. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by taking communion. You're not saved by any works that you can or have done. You're saved by grace through faith, and that's it. But to quote the hip-hop artist I love, but if you're saved by grace through faith, and that's it, then if you're saved, then you'll hate unrighteousness. And you'll grow in righteousness. And that's James's argument. It's active, it's complete, full of steadfastness, perfecting our faith, mature, complete, the spirit animating the body, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Works demonstrate the vitality of our faith like the spirit activates and animates our physical body. This is what I'll close with. I want to I kind of push you to the moment that's referred to in this text as Abraham's outward working of his faith in Genesis chapter 22. And I'll draw just one quick point from that and we'll close. In Genesis 22, if you don't know the story, you can, there's actually a movie out in the theaters right now. I don't know if it's still in the theaters. called His Only Son. There's a, a Christian, actually a Marine, who had a burden on his heart to depict and film the story of Abraham. And so the story of Abraham going to sacrifice his only son who he prayed for, who God promised him, yet there was delay and delay and delay, and they didn't know. Ultimately, and he trusted in God. There was difficulty along the way, but ultimately comes to a place where God says, I want you to sacrifice your own son, the son that you've longed for and waited for. And Genesis chapter 2 is the culminating moment of that. Where he goes to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. That's the context. You can ask me later if you have questions. Genesis 22, verses 10 and 10 through 12 says this. It says, Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Listen to this language. For now I know that you fear God. Now it's clear that your faith is real. How do we know that? Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God provides a substitute in the ram. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. So here's two questions for you to take home with you. How is your faith at work? Do you look at your life and can you see even just small components of fruit where you realize that God is at work in my life? Ask people you're close to. Like, do you see God at work in my life? Because God's work in us is a community project, right? We believe that wholeheartedly as a church. We're created for community. 
We grow in godliness in the context of community. If you don't know the answer to that question, find someone you trust and love and ask them a question like, hey, do you see God's work in my life? But how is God at work in your life? Because he should be. Imperfectly, we should be growing in knowledge and the grace of God, different in degrees from where we were five years ago, one year ago, even one month ago. There's things we're convicted about. We know we need to change and we're seeking to grow. How is God at work in your life? And the last question would be this. Is there anything that you are withholding from God? I think it's notable in this moment in Abraham's life, the thing that God demonstrates to him and shows is the evidence of like, you truly do fear me because you didn't withhold your only son from me. And I would submit maybe that's one of the chief evidences of a saving, genuine faith is there's nothing that you withhold from God. Is there anything that you're withholding from him? Is there anything that you're withholding from him? Is there any relationship? Is it in your finances? Is it in your language? Is your relationship to other people? Is it quietly when you're at home on your computer? Is there anything in your life that you're withholding from the influence of the Spirit of God and the work of God in you? And I pray that for us as a church that we never be lulled into thinking just because we've been given grace through Jesus that grace is somehow just passively waiting to take us to heaven one day. When grace is in you, grace is working out through you. It's going to make you different. And I pray that we be like that city on a hill in a dark world that needs to see the difference that Jesus makes. Amen? All right, let's pray to that end. Father, I do pray uh, that by your grace, by your word, through the power of your spirit, that there wouldn't be any area of our life detached from your rule and your reign. No resource or gift, possession, relationship, shielded from submission to you. I pray there'd be nothing that we value so much that we withhold it from you. And there are things that will, will cost us in this world, in this world temporarily to follow you. There will be a cost associated with it, but he who gains Christ surely loses nothing at all. And we can gain the whole world, and if we lose Christ, we have nothing. But if we have Christ, and we, if we have Christ and we lose the whole world, then we gain everything. Help us believe that, strengthen our faith. I pray that our faith would work out outwardly into this world through our lives to increase righteousness, that Jesus would be seen as awesome and powerful and worthy to be followed. It's in his name I pray. Amen.